Welcome to Beyond the Call, brought to you by Start Church. We hope you enjoy the upcoming podcast and hope this time is empowering, inspiring, and helpful as you pursue the dream God has put in your heart. The participants of this podcast are not attorneys, and this recording is not to be considered legal advice. Please contact your local attorney's office where needed. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to Beyond the Call, the podcast in which we talk about topics that help churches and ministries protect what God has called them to lead. On today's episode, we'll be discussing how to establish a legal foundation for a church or a ministry. Joining us today is TJ Hawkins, the Chief Operating Officer of Start Church. Thanks for being here, TJ. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to do it. So a lot of pastors call Start Church and ask us questions, and probably one of the most popular questions we get, though, is should pastors incorporate their churches? Great question, Bruce. So the real question really ought to be, should I create a corporation for my church? There's a lot of confusion around what that means. And the truth is is that uh, many fringe groups teach that if a church becomes incorporated, that they somehow lose their autonomy, somehow Mm -hmm. lose their authority by placing what is the body of Christ underneath the control and power and authority of the state. I hear that complaint a lot, actually. Absolutely. It's just simply not true. Uh, A corporation is actually an artificial entity, a fake person, so to speak, that you establish as a legal entity, which is separate and distinct from the founders and members of the church. So from a legal standpoint, churches that are not incorporated are actually under the same legal liability as churches that are incorporated. Mm, uh Some groups believe that by not incorporating, they remain immune from any government oversight. But that premise just really has no legal standing. Truthfully, courts across the country have ruled that unincorporated churches and nonprofit organizations come under the exact same regulation and will be treated in the same manner as those who have incorporated So the personal legal liability of its members, the directors, the pastors, the liability that they assume, if they choose to exist as an unincorporated association, it's at a far greater risk than those who do choose to incorporate. That's an important point. And yeah, you you hear a lot of conspiracy theories almost surrounding this, but I think it's really just based on a lack of understanding of the legal code. Absolutely. So Section 7701A3 of the Internal Revenue Code clearly defines that for tax purposes, an unincorporated church shall be treated as a corporation. Therefore, the same regulations that govern unincorporated churches will apply to unincorporated churches. They're under the same legal liability. And what's gained by corporation for churches is that they don't lose their identity, they don't lose their soul, so to speak, uh, they don't lose their authority or autonomy. What they gain is a buffer between them and the liability that comes from government oversight. That's a really important point. And I think that's what most of our pastors really want. They want that autonomy. They want the ability to follow the Lord's leadership Absolutely. And this this is something that will provide the protection. Uh, what we often say at, at Start Church is that we like to provide the protection and the uh, ability for churches and pastors to be able to function in such a way that they have uh, true control over their ministry and that we establish uh, the ability for leaders to uh, pr- be protected in what God's calling them to lead. So why is it recommended uh, that incorporating should be one of the first steps for any church? That's a great uh, question. The truth is is that it should be 
one of the first steps. It's best practice. Uh, some statistics indicate that approximately 1,000 churches a month are sued, with uh, this being the most litigious society in the history of the world. Uh, having that protection from liability for the founders of the church and the directors and the pastors, anyone in, in leadership, is really important from the very onset of, of the church's existence. So that number of churches being sued is likely to keep rising because many churches are starting in homes or in hotels or in conference rooms or in schools, which means they have to engage in different kinds of contracts than what is traditionally uh, been had in the per- in the past. That's a great point. So a lot of pastors, when I'm on the phone with them, will say, hey, you know, I rented this facility in my own name because we're not incorporated yet. There's nothing wrong with that, but the liability is on that individual versus the corporation, which could, you know, if the church were to incorporate, you're saying that that would give them a better level of protection. Absolutely. And most pastors uh, in their heart, they truly are looking out uh, from a shepherding perspective. I want to shepherd my sheep. I want to shepherd the church. I want to protect the church uh, from becoming something that it's not intended to be because of uh, secular oversight. But the truth is that incorporation is a tool granted in this great country to churches to be able to protect their religious freedoms, and in doing so, uh, create a buffer of protection between their church members and their church leaders and what is uh, government liability. I like how you phrase that. Uh, We hear some terms every now and again here in the office that get tossed around. I wanted to ask you if you could identify what does it mean to have limited legal liability, or or more specifically, what does the word corporate veil really refer to? Absolutely. So the main one is legal limited liability. This is the benefit uh, called the corporate veil. So in simple terms, it means that the personal assets of the founders, the directors, the officers, the trustees, and others in leadership positions would be completely protected if anyone ever tried to sue the church. Without the corporate veil in place, all of the assets of those leaders are absolutely on the table and are liable uh, under that lawsuit. Well, it sounds like a no-brainer to pursue incorporation. And, uh, you know, it- Assuming that the church's books are in order, assuming that the corporate status and that shield is in place, we found that a lot of pastors and directors, um, just from a personal responsibility uh, towards the church, feel that they need some extra tools. And so we want to let you guys know about the Ministry Corporate Records Kit. It offers an ability to keep everything, uh, all of your records organized, everything that you need should be easily accessible when you're looking at records and things like that. That's not my top uh, most fun topic, but it's something that's definitely necessary. People need that organization, that internal ability. So the Ministry Corporate Records Kit gives that option to keep things streamlined. And our secretary suite is also another really good resource that teaches preventative measures so as not to be held personally responsible for the actions of the church. It allows you to actually take inventory of your items so you can properly assess for insurance claims or for liability purposes. We would love for you guys to check out www.startchurch.com, and we've got a range of products and services there that is designed just to tackle this topic, just to help you to move forward in the vision that God's given you. So I want to move on to another topic, another question here for TJ, our COO at Start Church. How does a church go about getting incorporated? What are kind of some of the mechanics or some of the practical steps that are involved? Absolutely. Truth is, is that getting started is uh, 
seemingly a great hurdle, uh, a huge mountain for most people to climb. Most people don't know where to begin, don't know what resource to pull from to even start down this great journey that we call compliance. And that's something that Start Church's heart is so thrilled to be able to provide for literally thousands of pastors and churches, is where to begin in this process. So number one, you must file articles of incorporation with the state. Some states title that differently. Some call it the uh, Certificate of Incorporation or Articles of Formation, so on and so forth. When these articles have been filed with the Secretary of State, the state officially recognizes your church as having formed a corporation, and therefore the church can begin running its affairs under that incorporated identity. What's really important, you know, a lot of states, like you said, have different incorporation methods. Start Church knows exactly what to do in each state. In fact, in New York, you've got to go through the county level. And so some of that can be really perplexing. You're called to preach. You're called to uh, share the word and to disciple folks. And uh, our experts here are the ones that really can help guide you through that process. Absolutely. You know, nobody goes to uh, Bible college or seminary to study about legal compliance or all the nuances of being a legal a entity point. or protecting their church from um, from the outside, more so focused on protecting it spiritually from the inside and understanding that. But, however, most pastors and most churches understand uh, that there can also be a great benefit to being tax-exempt. And so uh, most pastors and most churches pursue tax exemption with the IRS. So the IRS also requires specific language to get articles of incorporation approved. And this language ensures that the organization meets what the IRS calls the organizational test. And the IRS requires this because it proves that the church meets the exemption requirements of the 501c3. Because the states do not usually require the same language as the IRS, a church that files articles of incorporation with only the minimum state requirements may need to file articles of amendment and add the organizational test language, and this causes a delay and could be extra yeah. money as well. I get calls all the time from pastors that say, hey, we incorporated. They got whatever bare minimum couple of articles, and they filed you know, with the state. That's not super difficult, but then they've reached the IRS stage, and they're just totally lost. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, creating the Articles of Incorporation, uh, it's an easy thing to do. If you go online, you can find a template here or a template there or some uh, random articles that you can yeah. download, uh, but those are not guaranteed to protect your church. They're not guaranteed uh, to allow your church to actually function in the sacerdotal uh, functions of a ministry or under the auspices of ordination. Those pieces of the language are extremely important and strategic in allowing a church to uh, engage in the legal functions of a church and of a ministry as recognized by the IRS. Yeah, in a lot of ways, what a church presents in the articles is not just, hey, I'm going to register, I'm going to file, but they're presenting their whole heart. They're saying, here's our purpose statement. Here's what we're all about. Here's the religious rights that under which we operate. Here's our statement of faith. So that's one of those things that we always encourage pastors, really nail down, spend some time on the vision. Absolutely. And the IRS actually cares about that. You want a purpose clause in your articles that is consistent with Section 501c3 of the IRS Code. Another important clause is the dissolution clause, and that states that the remaining assets will be used exclusively for exempt purposes, such as charitable, religious, educational purposes, and so on and so forth. So what we refer to as the no-no-nots, 
which limit the organization from engaging in activities that are not in the furtherance of its tax-exempt purpose. Yeah, sometimes I'll have a discussion with a pastor about these clauses, and they'll say, well, why do we have to have that? And ultimately, the legal jargon aside, really what we're saying is we are operating as a nonprofit. We're not here to pad our pockets. And I think exclusively the pastors that I work with, that's, that's what they want. They're here to serve the body of Christ. They're here to serve the Lord. So these things are simply stating what they already want to do, what they already believe as a church they will be doing. Absolutely. And sometimes the language really can get bogged down. It can be confusing. And you can say, what does that mean, a purpose clause? What does that mean, a dissolution clause? So let me take just a minute to kind of break this down. So what is a purpose clause? Well, the purpose clause really does state the reason for formation and provides the scope of activities an organization will undergo. So this is not to be confused with a list of activities. It's merely how an organization plans to accomplish its purpose. So the following items should be included in your church's purpose clause. Number one, language that clearly creates a religious or ecclesiastical corporation that allows your ministry to expand into a wide array of activities. Number two, it ought to include language regarding licensing and ordaining of ministers if your church or ecclesiastical ministry desires to ordain ministers. This is a huge and important piece of the language. Many pastors don't understand that uh, ordination legally is only as good as the legal standing of the organization that is providing that ordination. Yeah, now spiritually, you know, the Lord commissions and ordains people on a spiritual level. But as far as the paperwork is concerned, that ordination, that license that you then go and sign a marriage certificate, you want to make sure that that's done properly. Absolutely. Not only for uh, those sacerdotal functions, but also for tax purposes to be able to uh, take a housing allowance or to take many of the tax benefits that are afforded to ministers who are ordained. It is important that that ordain is seen as a legal ordination, not only as a spiritual ordination. Really good point. Also, a blanket statement to cover all other necessary, suitable, or convenient activities related to the purposes needed in the language as well. This kind of is an umbrella to cover all the other aspects and pieces that are necessary for functioning as a legal church. And then a statement that the corporation is organized and operated exclusively for religious purposes with the meaning of Section 501c3 of the IRS Code. Excellent. So uh, you mentioned something earlier called a dissolution clause, and this sometimes scares the pastors that I'm on the phone with. They think, well, I don't ever want to dissolve, Um, and Lord willing, they won't. But it is something that's required in the actual incorporation papers. Tell us about that part. Absolutely. It's extremely important. Uh, As much as we know the heart of God, we know the calling of God on our lives, but the truth is is that we don't know the full extent of what comes in the future of our ministry. The dissolution clause is also really important. This clause explicitly states where the assets of the corporation will go in the case of dissolution. So the money and the assets of a nonprofit organization must be permanently dedicated to a tax-exempt purpose and can't exist to benefit any individual or group of individuals. So we recommend a clause stating that all assets remaining after the payment of debts and liabilities will go to one or more organizations which are also exempt according to 501c3 and 170c2 of the IRS code. 
And I'll speak to this briefly. Just there is a little bit of conspiracy theory out there with the disillusion that um, the government's going to come in and and take the money of the church if we choose to shut down. And uh, that's really not the case. You get to determine where the money goes. You can actually bless another ministry or give the assets to another church upon disillusion. And the whole purpose of that, like you said, TJ, is so that a pastor doesn't just pad his pockets. Hey, the, shir- the church is shutting down. I'm just going to take the million dollars that's left in the bank account and just go run off to Vegas. That's not what we want in the body of Christ. And, you know, when people see it in that light, the disillusion makes a lot more sense. Absolutely. Nor could a, a lasting group of church members that see the church shut down completely uh, should they expect an, a paycheck at the end of that from the, the selling of the assets. Uh, those assets are required to be given to another organization with 501c3 status. So you mentioned something that's kind of a weird phrase, the no-no-not clause. Tell us about that one. Absolutely. So the no-no-nots uh, are also extremely important. Every nonprofit corporation Uh, churches included, should explicitly state in the articles of the incorporation that it will abide by IRS standards as a tax-exempt organization. This is known as nonprofit language, but we commonly refer to it as the no-no-nots. Okay, so besides incorporating, uh, there's other steps that a church or ministry has to take in order to create a legal foundation. So we're going to get into some of those as well. But another critical step in the process of applying for a federal employer identification number, or otherwise known as an FEIN number, um, that's one of the most common things that people come and ask me. Can you tell us a little bit about the FEIN? Absolutely. And that's part of our Start Right program, uh, getting that FEIN for churches and uh, nonprofit religious organizations. And basically, the FEIN is uh, simply an identification number for tax, banking, or credit building purposes. The number can be compared, for example, to a person receiving his or her Social Security number. And the church will use this number mostly for the same purpose an individual would, such as opening a checking account or establishing credit or to file all pertinent tax and information returns. So one of the things I run into, sometimes a pastor will call and say, hey, my church was dissolved, and what happened? And it turns out in obtaining an FEIN number, they did so under the wrong classification. So it's actually a little more complex than it sounds. It's not hard to obtain an FEIN number, but getting the right one and getting it done properly is paramount. And so, you know, we're talking about uh, just the steps that are creating a legal foundation what does it take to really draft and approve bylaws? You hear sometimes someone will refer to it as a church charter or a constitution, and here in-house we refer to it as bylaws. Tell us about that part. Absolutely. So here at Start Church, we say that your articles are the most important information for your church next to the Holy Scriptures, and right next to that are your church bylaws. So by definition, bylaws are a document that contained the supreme law of the corporation and rules based on the scriptures by which the church will govern itself. So your church can't pass or implement any rules, resolutions, policies, or procedures that contradict your church's bylaws. They are your governing documents. They are your governing rules. 
At Start Church, we encourage churches and ministries to review their bylaws every year. If your church has not updated its bylaws in the last year, we strongly recommend that you look them over to ensure that they contain the latest provisions concerning membership, homosexual marriages, religious exemption clauses, privacy issues, clergy pertinent clauses, and so much more. The IRS actually recommends that churches uh, review and update their bylaws every two years. It's important because a lot of people say, well, I've got bylaws, or you know, I copy-pasted the bylaws from church X, Y, and Z from 20 years ago, but we have found that that can actually put people in a pretty bad predicament. And so tell us a few more details. What does the uh, actual bylaw document need to contain? Absolutely. Great question. And the meat of those bylaws really does matter. You don't want to go with a cookie cutter set of bylaws. You don't want to adopt bylaws from another church because we know that your church is unique. It's an individual entity. It's an individual calling and that every church, uh, though governed by scripture, will take on some of the personality of its members and of its leadership. And so your purpose and and the individual purpose that God has called you to in your church and in your ministry should really be seen in the bylaws of your church. So often churches have been confused between the content that's appropriate for their bylaws versus what's appropriate for putting into the Articles of Incorporation. So let's spend just a minute ironing that out. So things like your ordination requirements are important to mention in your bylaws. However, it's not recommended that you go into specific detail on those items. For example, if your bylaws contain the exact details and requirements that one has to meet in order to become ordained through your church, and you decide after some time to change or to tweak that process, then it becomes imperative that you amend your church's bylaws. The issue with this is that amending your church's bylaws every time you make a change to your doctrines, membership guidelines, your ordination program, or whatever it may be, the process can become tedious and uh, overwhelming for everyone involved. Absolutely. Knowing how important bylaws are at Start Church, we've identified a handful of really important points that need to go into your bylaws to make sure and ensure that the bylaws are protecting your church and and actually defining what your church intends to accomplish. So I'm going to give these to you in a list, and I'll go over them one by one. There's the entity name, the intent to form an organization, the definition of a controlling body, the definition of a quorum, amendments, and then finally signatures. Let's start with your entity name. That's really important. It needs to be self-explanatory. So be sure to include the entire name of your church, including any corporate indicators such as incorporated INC. Next, we talk about the intent to form an organization. Churches that go through our Start Right program, they find the intent to form an organization in the actual preamble of the bylaws. So even in a simple preamble, there's little room to question what type of organization is being established and what their intention is in their function. Next of all, we talk about defining a controlling body. What is the definition of your controlling body? Well, when you establish your church's controlling body, you're actually defining who's going to be the decision makers in the church. Highly important. Absolutely. So depending on how you establish your church, The controlling body will either be the board of directors if it's a board-led church, or the defining body could be the church members if it's a congregational-led church, which we see variations and mixtures and 
uh, of those all the time. It's not one or the other. It's often a mixture of some of the above. One time I had a church that had presbyters, deacons, a board of trustees, and I think one other board somehow that was in the mix. And hey, it worked for them. Absolutely. And it will. And we're not here to define what works for people. We're here to make sure that what they want is actually what gets put into their bylaws so that if their bylaws ever came under question, they could say, this is exactly how we're functioning. And it's exactly how we uh, wrote out from the beginning we intended to function. Next of all, there's the definition of a quorum. So this is extremely important. A quorum is a very practical piece of information that needs to be included in your bylaws to define how many individuals must be present in order to accomplish a corporate meeting. And you can only imagine what that, uh, the impact of a quorum and its definition would be in a board-led church versus a congregational-led church. In a board-led church, for example, we recommend that you use a two-thirds majority quorum. Well, that could be three out of five board members. Well, in a congregational-led church, you may need 75% uh, at a minimum of your congregation there voting on a specific item. So it has massive implications when you define what a quorum is for decision-making purposes within the church. Next, we talk about amendments. There will always come a time when you have to amend your bylaws, and we want to uh, regulate what that is and, and so as to not be doing it too often or having to stir the pot on changing bylaws within the church, but there's going to come a time when you want to amend it because of legal changes that happen in legislation in this country. And so what you want to do is preemptively establish the manner in which bylaws will be amended by stating that in the bylaws themselves. And then finally, you want signatures. The official adoption and implementation of the bylaws is accomplished by an official vote of the board of directors, and their signatures have to be on that document. So at a minimum, we suggest that your bylaws be signed by the president, the treasurer, and the secretary of the board. You know, hearing this as a pastor myself, I just want to get out there and preach. Uh, I don't like the administrative side of things as my natural bent, but the Bible says to do all things decently and in order. So this has been really helpful to hear just some of the basics. And that being said, uh, Start Church, of course, when we do bylaws for a pastor, we don't just do these foundational elements. We bring a lot more to the table, especially pertaining to the statement of faith. That's what a lot of pastors come to me and say, hey, I'm really concerned with all the lawsuits. Um, how can I keep the statement of faith protected? And so we actually have clauses we can insert directly into the bylaws that help in that regard. Um, again, to streamline the process so that we don't have as many church politics situations ruining the vision of God. We've actually got protections for a pastor in the unlikely event, uh, even Jesus had his Judas, but in the unlikely event that a board member tries to seize control or there's a secret vote behind the pastor's back, we have protections for that kind of thing. And all of this, again, is really designed to help the vision that God's given you. So, TJ, this has been invaluable. Thank you so much My for pleasure. Thank all of you. this input. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast brought to you by Start Church. If you have any questions about what you've heard today, please give us a call, 844-641-5718. Or you can visit our website at startchurch.com. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Beyond the Call.